We're, the, the primary reason we're all here, you know that the subtitle of the course is um, to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. I just want to take a second with that because sometimes I think because we're dealing with literature and we're not, we're not dealing um, directly with an ecclesial world, icons, an altar, you know, um, um, rosary beads, any, anything like that. My hope has always been that um, we get out of that world into the world as we know it, that we live every day, and try to find Christ there. Because I think it's harder sometimes. It's easy in church. I mean, or it, I think it's much easier. We go there to meditate and pray. And, but it's been to find Christ in our world because it's so easy to miss him. If we're learning anything from this course, I hope, it's that he's there everywhere, always, never not there. Um, he's there with Portia in her mercy speech. Um, I'm going to probably go over some of those lines again. But um, he's with Helena. You know, um, serious question whether, in my mind, whether he's with Desdemona and Othello. I, he opened up, I thought, a terribly difficult question. I'm going to return to it in a minute. Where is Christ at work in our world? In people. Um, remember the, one of the opening um, lyrics that I read was that supernatural love of that mother who looked back on herself when she was four, pricking herself. And who, how many people would see Christ an old girl pricking her finger. It's just not going to happen. In my mind, that's an indication of a blindness in us. We just don't see very well. We don't, we don't see by analogy, by parallels, by correspondence. We, we, we are on a surface tending to see things literally. Too much. Um, I think one of the... I'm going to go to that next. It's, I'm not going to speak more on that. I just Anyway, that's why we're here. To see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. To learn to open our eyes, our hearts... Um, to do what he asks, um, um, to see if he's not more present than we know. The, the subtext of that subtitle would be tradition. In one sense, we're here to recover a tradition because it's lacking in our world. Um, what um, um, Helen said a couple of weeks ago when I asked, why are the men in Venice so light? And she said, they're, you know, they're transactional. It seemed to me it just went... If, if, if our world is a business world, how many, how many young men, young women, yeah, but how many young men choose literature as a major today? I mean, what, what's the, I mean I'm a, my assumption, I may be wrong in this, is most kids when they go to school, their parents will say, do something that will get you a job. Major in business. Business was never a major until 50 years ago. I mean, everybody would have laughed at the idea. You learn how to do business by practical affairs. You go to school for a liberal education. That's gone. 90% of the majors, I'm sorry I'm exaggerating, <laughs> too many of the majors are business majors today. If you live in a business world and that limits your world, you're in a one-dimensional world. How well do you see the deeper realities? You don't without a tradition. So one of the things that's behind this work is the recovery of a tradition. That's what we're doing. My assumption is it's that tradition that gives Portia the ability to read the law as she does. Without it, she wouldn't have been able to do that. She would have been like a Venetian lawyer. Because tradition is multi-layered. It gives a depth to the way we see. It's like a lens, glasses. If, we're, if a tradition is alive in us, it gives a depth to our reading. So part of what we're doing is recovering a tradition. And in this case, it's not an academic tradition. 
it's, there's a catechetical aspect because my, my focus is, can we, can we find Christ here? Is he around? Is God at work here? So just, just a reminder, that's why we're here. It's, um, so even if we're not dealing explicitly with a, an ecclesial world, we're not in a church, you know, we don't have rose beads in our hands, or we're not saying a prayer, um, we're, we're, um, we're, we're trying to deepen our involvement in our world to bring Christ more fully in what we do with each other. Okay? So, um, okay, with that said, I want to go back to um, see, if, I just want to spend only a few minutes on this. This concern about the Venetian world that we just had, because we're going to enter another world in all's well. Um, is Othello damned? And I, by, I, let me, the second commandment says, you don't take God's name in vain. That does not mean don't swear. It, that is not what it means. Don't take God's name in vain means you don't speak for God. God's going to determine the ultimate ends of things. It's not for us to say. Um, the damnation, the salvation of a soul is in his hands, not ours. So, I don't want to play loose here. I want to be careful. I'm, ra I'm putting the question that way because I want to put it to its pitch. So I'm not asking for any of us to damn Othello or save him. I'm, it's the only way I know of to get to the seriousness of what he does. I don't want to pass this over. So any last thoughts before we leave Othello? Is he damned or not? I, I know there were divided thoughts on it before we, before we leave. Shakespeare in all tragedies. I'm going to speak to tragedy in a second because I know it's, uh, it's, it's been on a lot of your minds. Um, but I've got to come back to something because it's, it's really important in the way we understand. Any last thoughts before we leave Othello? Let me give one last thought. Um, myself, I don't think he is. Um, for a couple of reasons, and I know that's a, I mean, it, he's just killed his wife, and I'm, I'm trying to picture Othello before Christ, um, and, and knowing that, um, that Christ brought a mercy to everything he did. Two of, the, two of the scenes that I have in my mind when I think about this is, remember that the last scene um, that we have of Christ before the resurrection is, is on the cross, and he says to the man next to him, this night, God, this night, I, when I will see you in paradise. Stunning, just stunning. This is a criminal. He's being executed. And he says to him, and, and it's, it's so clear that he says it because that man has compassion. He regrets what he's done. He couldn't have said those words to Christ. Christ says, this night I shall see you in paradise. Um, and the other scene that comes to my mind is, remember the scene with the two men in the temple? Um, and hold on to this, because this is crucial. This is the, the, the scene where... One man is um, boasting of himself, complimenting himself because he's so good. And the other man is saying, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And Christ said he came for sinners. So he's, he's clearly encouraging us not to be afraid of our sins, to hide them or, or, or act like we're better than other people because other people have committed sins and we haven't. Because we, we all know we have. Um, so with, with those two parables in the back of my mind, or the, the scenes, two scenes, um, let me offer this thought. 
Remember that at the end of Othello, just before he takes his life, or, and just after he kills Desdemona, he has that um, one scene where suddenly everything is made clear to him that everything he did was wrong, that Othello had worked this up, and he sees, Iago, sorry, um, he sees the depth of his sin, and he says, and this is this brave, remember, remember he's, recent, he's only recently baptized, so he hasn't had, he's not, a, he's not a Catholic cradle, or a cradle Catholic, he's not lived under the faith for 20 years, he's just entered into it, he's an immigrant, he comes from another world, he's bringing everything of that other world that's alien to this Venetian Republic, because remember, Venice is the model of an educated Western liberal democracy, it's the prototype that produced us. So it images everything good that an education can give you, art, painting, music, philosophy. Um, and we're watching evil work, more there than anywhere. He comes into this world, he is, he is, he is, he is no match for Iago. Iago is a man of the intellect, he uses intellect to do everything he can to manipulate Othello to lead him to this point. And then he says, as the men go off to get Iago because he's run away, and Graziano's at the door as if he's going to stop Othello, because Othello's this warrior, he's, he, he's not going to be afraid of one man. He's gone through 30 and 40 and 50 minutes at a time before. He says, Behold, I have a weapon. A better never did itself sustain upon a soldier's thigh. He's a great warrior. I have seen the day that with this little arm and this good sword I have made my way through more impediments than twenty times your stop. He's talking to Graziano. Twenty times, twenty men, twenty Grazianos will not stop him. He's that kind of a warrior. But O oh, vain boast, who can control his fate? Tis not so now. Be not afraid, though you do see me weaponed. Here is my journey's end. Here's my butt. And very sea mark of my utmost sail. Do you go back dismayed? Tis a lost fear, man but a, um, a rush against Othello's breast, and he retires. He, <laughs> this is not Othello as he's known himself all of his life. He's come to his end. He killed the thing that meant most to him, and he has nothing to live for. No fights to fight anymore. What's there to fight? His whole way of looking at the world is gone. Um, Tis a lost fear, man but a rush against Othello's breast, and he retires. Where should Othello go? Now how dost thou look now? O ill-starred wench, he's looking at Desdemona, pale as thy smock. When, shall, when we shall meet at Compt, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at it. Cold, cold, my girl, even like thy chastity, O cursed, cursed slave, that's him. Whip me, you devils, from the position, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire. O Desdemona, dead Desdemona, dead. He moans. So he's recognizing his wrong. Okay? When we go to if we are still together, when you get to Dante's Divine Comedy, you'll see that the people in hell are all alike in one respect. They have lost the good of the intellect. There's no power of recognition. They've committed sins. The one thing that they will not do is acknowledge their sins. What separates them from the mercy of Christ is a refusal to acknowledge their sins. We're asked to go to confession all the time. 
Yeah? It's, it's our way of reminding us, you know, that we need help. So here's Othello recognizing his sin, number one. And not only recognizing it, but wanting to be whipped, punished. Because it's devastating to him to think what he's just done. So he's recognizing it, okay, one. Two, just when they're about to take him and Iago off, remember, and, and, the, and Ludovico says to find some torture for Iago because they know how evil he's been. Uh, so they're going to be let off to jail. And Othello says, wait, wait. Soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. He's not going to buy off anybody here. He's not asking for um, a, a plea down, you know, sentence. Um, I have done the state some service, and you know it. No more of that. I pray you in your letters when you shall these unlucky deeds relate. Speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate. Extenuate nothing. Because he, what, what should be clear from this point, if there's something in the interest of this Venetian state, the Venetian Senate will find it. They want Othello. Remember, they chose him to go on this expedition because he's the one to lead them. He, he's, the, he's the one in, in whom they most trust, turn to, to defend their interest. They want power because without it, the, the Turks could destroy him and Venice is gone. So he's an image of the, the dependence of the Venetian state on arms, a warrior, soldier, somebody ready to go to war. He says, extenuate nothing, because I think he knows if he goes to court, the lawyers are going to get him off or extenuate it. They're going to say, he didn't do it. Look what this guy did to him. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't extenuate anything. Um, speak of his, me of as I am. Nothing extenuate nor set down. Ought in malice. And, and don't let malice come in. That's almost like Portia. Don't let this extreme, this extreme, color what you're doing. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, he identifies himself with Judas, with Judas threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, drops tears as fast as the Arabian trees, weeping. Set you down this, and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian, and traduce the state. That's the side of him that he sees as a Turk, not Christianized, that is, that committed this evil, that, that gave in against the better part of him. Um, that a, a, a turban Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state. I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him, thus kills himself. Now let me just stop. I don't want to go here because we just as a, a thought, you know, a, a reading to consider. One part of Othello is so horrified at the other. There's something good enough in him to recognize what's wrong, enough to want to kill it. So he kills it. I just want to throw this out and then I want to leave it because it just thinks to me the depths of this are so great, it's so obscure. You know, I'm trying to avoid a easy black-white judgment here. Judas killed himself out of despair. Judas killed himself out of despair. Despair mean despair without hope. You know, it, it wasn't um, to exact justice. He just killed God or betrayed God. We all killed him. We're complicit in that sin. 
He didn't do it out of justice. He did it out of despair. Is, is Othello taking his life in despair or in justice? Let me leave it there, okay? There's one part of him which, that is clear-sighted enough to see the Turk and exact judge, ju justice on it. Because I think he knows if he were to go back to Venice, they're not going to do that. He is so clear about the depth of his sin, and he doesn't want it let go. So let me leave it at that, okay? Just um, part, partly, we're going to, we'll see this in other works that we're reading, but one of the things I wanted to do is suggest that what Shakespeare does is, particularly in the tragedies, is show us a depth of wrong in the character that's answered. So um, leave it there. I'm going to come to tragedy in a second because we're going to, um, um, I, I want everybody to have a better sense of this before we go on. So the other, the other two, yeah, go ahead. But I could understand the depth of the sin in killing Desdemona, but it's also a sin to kill yourself. yourself. I know. So I mean, it's I know. hard to rationalize. Yeah. He's a Turk. No, he's a Moor. Well, it's what, what we've got at the end is a divided self, yeah. you know. Well, because, yes, he, he would have, if he had gone back to Venice, he would have been probably checked the charges dismissed because of, as you said, he recognized the importance of him as a warrior, but that he would have been able to carry that sin and lost throughout the of his life. Yeah. And, yep. I, I don't have any trouble with that point of view. I mean, my own... I. I myself don't see it that way. Just, I'm, I, I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to, we could spend an evening again and I don't want to do that. It's, it, to, to me, it's the easiest thing. I mean, one of the things we've got to hold on to when we look at this is that Othello's a man of justice. He's only recently come into the church. He's from another world. He's a warrior. Um, anyway, let me leave it there, okay? When we get to Dante, it's going to be interesting um, and remember, Pope Benedict want, called the whole church to read Dante a year ago. Um, when we get to Dante, when Dante gets out of hell with Virgil, Virgil takes him through. Dante wants to go to God at the beginning of the story. He starts up this mountain, he gets beaten back, and Virgil comes to help him. It reminds me of um, Fellowship of the Ring with Frodo. You know, Frodo, if you've watched it, we just watched the end of it. It, on, it happened, we caught the end of it last night. Remember that as much as he wanted to take that ring to complete his journey, he could never, ever, ever do it himself. At the very end, you know, and Frodo's going, when, when, um, when Sam is after him and Frodo's right there in the edge of the precipice ready to throw the ring, he can't do it. He cannot do it. The, the, and, I, and I look at that as one of the most profound things that Tolkien did, because what Tolkien is saying, every single one of us, every single one of us has some sin that as much as we want to give up, we don't have the power on our own. If we did, we wouldn't have needed Christ. The, the, the source of that ring, by the way, is Plato in the Republic. It's Plato in the Republic. Tolkien got it there because what Plato's, Plato's recognizing, every single one of us wants to have power to get away with something um, because the weakness that we have for that thing is so great, we can't overcome it. Put the ring on, it makes us invisible and we can have anything we want. Drugs, alcohol, food, sex, um, porn, you name it, whatever it is. 
Whatever it is, any one of us, that is a weakness for any one of us, we cannot do it ourselves. If you remember the end of that, Frodo can't do it. He finally turns on him and he has this malicious smile, this sinister smile, puts it on as if to say, I want it. Suddenly, Gollum jumps him and bites the finger off, if you remember the movie. Tolkien is really clear. It took nine men and a fellowship. That movie is so absolutely Catholic. Absolutely at its core, Catholic. The fundamental difference between a Protestant and a Catholic is an individual, a community. Um, Tolkien's light and snow, that, that each one of us, care, that, that ring represents individual autonomy. I want to be able to do whatever I want. There's something lawless at the center of every one of our souls. Having more wine than we should have? There's a law against it. I don't care. Put the law away. I'm going to have my wine. Every one of us wants that autonomy to do whatever I want. And, and often we do it in secret, and often we get caught or, you know. When Dante goes up that hill, he's trying to get to God by himself. He can't. It's only when Virgil comes along that he gets the help that he needs. Virgil takes him through hell at the, at the, um, at the foot of purgatory. He's going to meet Cato. This is the foot of purgatory, the door into purgation. Who greets him? Cato. A Roman suicide at that door. That is absolutely orthodox Catholicism. If you don't believe me, you have to hold on until we get there. That's Dante and St. Thomas and St. Thomas. Um, anyway, so um, give that them some thought. Shakespeare's his, his ability to go into the human soul and open it in its depths should make it harder for us to make judgments, you know, to, to realize there's a lot we don't see. Um, so anyway, the question that I asked, the two questions that I've been asking, I want to answer tonight. I want to really, I want to get these behind us so we move forward. Why are the men in Venice so light, first? And the second, why are the Venetians so susceptible to evil? Is there a Christ, a God answering this stuff in either, either one of the plays? We've, I've already suggested that Portia is an image of Christ, that remember, hark the music when she comes home. She is poetry. She is beauty and order and truth. Um, she's in the courtroom. Shylock is asking for his bond. Um... And, um, sorry, God bless. Um, Shylock wants his bond, the, the Christians want him off, and, oh my goodness, okay, sorry. And then Portia speaks these words asking for mercy, God bless. Sorry, I'm really sorry here. Here. So, caught on both sides um, by positions that will actually bring ruin to the city and enforce a bad law, which is what happens all the time. She says, 
The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that giveth him. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows. Is there anything closer to Christ? There's, there's a love human beings are capable of if they put themselves away and act in not only God's love, but his wisdom to make a law real, because that's what Christ did on the cross. So I suggested when we did it that she's an image of Christ. We can look past it. She could not have done that without Christ. There's no way. A Roman couldn't have done that. A Greek couldn't have done that. Um, so um, what is it in Venice that makes these men so light? Is there Christ there? I suggested Portia was. And in Othello's Venice, what is, what is it about Venice that makes it so susceptible to evil? I just want to take a few minutes with that tonight because it's so important. Any thoughts on this before we put these two plays away? Why is... I've told you before, if you look at all of Shakespeare's play, there's not another man that comes close to Iago. He's as close to anything demonic. As Honest, I'm not exaggerating that. He's as close to something angelic pure intellect, the, the harm that, remember he said, I am not that I am. He's the very opposite of God. His whole being is to destroy something. That's rational. He's a human being. His whole, everything in him wants to destroy. And the, what would be the natural object of anybody demonic like that, who's opposed to God? Love. No matter what he does with everything else, where he's most destructive, finally, is love. So what is it about this regime that makes such an opening for that, for that to work, for that man, before we put it away? Come on, Helen. I, I was just thinking that, like you say, I think the men were just all business, and as a result, they don't have the depth to see beyond, um, uh, get back to that transactional piece again. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Portia or the women have that depth, so they see things much more, you, not just one dimension, mm -hmm. holistically. Mm -hmm. So, and I think maybe because the men are much more one dimensional, much more transactional business, mm -hmm. They, they're much more susceptible or maybe accepting of like law and order kind of thing. And so maybe there's that sense of belief, believing of others that, you know, because they live in... Credulity. Right. Credulous to mm -hmm. too easily accept, yeah. Yeah, because I guess they expected that, you know, I think... Um, I forgot, it's one of the father, when the daughter eloped, he says, this cannot be happening. Brabantio. Right. Yeah. That this doesn't happen here. Right. Because. Right. This is Venice. Right. This is Venice. <laughs> so, so I guess they kind of expect that everything should be kind of in order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they believe. Mm -hmm. And they're susceptible to Iago. Yeah. Mary? In this uh, city, that part of the yeah. world, it seemed like the women were not very well Maybe they were objects uh, because they were expected to obey. Uh, you know, Iago told Amelia to shut up, wanted to get her to do his dirty work. Uh, 
Othello said he had to kill Desdemona for honor, and Cassio, who was this great guy, had a mistress. You know, they used all these people, mm -hmm. these women. So, to me, you need the male and the female aspect to make it whole. And yeah. it didn't seem like the female aspect was mm -hmm. wanted. Be careful. Yeah, I, I just be careful here. Um, what's her? Not, not Amelia. What's the prostitute's name? Uh, Bianca. Bianca is using Cassio too. I mean, I want to be really careful. If you look at literature through history, women are as inclined to use men as men are. It's a different way. But one of the themes that we it's impossible not to encounter it in the literature. We'll find it in the Iliad and the Odyssey is that after the fall, there is this great estrangement between men and women. And it, does, it doesn't just fall on men. Women are as inclined to use men, treat them as objects for whatever they want as men. It's just a, it's a different dynamic. Um, and Desdemona, um, I mean, it, it's not, you know, I don't, Othello slaps her, you know, when, when they come to ask him to leave, to go back to Venice, because he's convinced that she's, betrayed him then, but there is this estrangement. We're going to see it again and again. We're going to see it in All's Well. Um, I, I almost wish we were doing Anthony and Cle Cleopatra's because you'd see the male-female thing up close, but say your name again. I'm sorry. Cheryl? Sharon? Cheryl. Go ahead. You had something. Um, again, it's going back to what you originally said. It's they, they got rid of tradition. They got rid of family. They, they didn't believe in marriage anymore. It, to me, the whole, they honored money, they honored, um, they honored um, uh, self-serving needs. Um, it was all that. And so yeah. They threw everything else away to justify what they did. Yeah. <clears throat> and so the, 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 you said, you know, all these different cultures that lived together in Venice and got along, they got along only because the common denominator was money. Right. You know, yeah. You know, what, what can I do to yeah. get ahead? I think that gets more to the character of Venice. Let me, anybody else? Go ahead, yeah. I was just say, it seems to me that one thing about it is their, their morality is very contingent. That what is good or what is bad is really viewed in terms of what works for me and what doesn't. And they assume that that's the motivating force behind everyone. And what escapes them is there can be a very powerful motivation that has nothing to do with what's needed. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A deeper evil that exists just because it does. Yeah. And, and moreover, that they, they can't see the nature of it because they don't even acknowledge evil. Right. That, you know, that it takes, that that's what it is, this large motivating force. Yeah. Let me offer just a couple of things. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. And say that last part again. Yep. Why not? Why not? They don't want to do the work. <laughs> Shell was, Othello's not a slouch, and neither is um, um, Cassio. Those men, I don't think they're afraid to work. Um, let me offer a couple of thoughts here. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay once. I can't remember what the title of it was, but he, he was referring to Othello and said that the great problem was trust. And I don't, I don't think it is. 
if, if anything, in my mind, it's that they trust too much, they're not skeptical enough. Um, but it, I mean, there's a correlation between those two words, you know, that how do we recognize evil? That's a, how, many of us, how many of us can see it when it's, what Shakespeare's showing is it's right under our noses and we don't see it. Let me offer a couple of thoughts here. A number, I think a number of things contribute to this cavalier attitude that the men have and this susceptibility to evil that's peculiar to Venice. One is that one of the founding principles of Venice is the love of freedom. You have the freedom to pursue whatever it is you want. Your success will depend on how resourceful you are. That's one of the marks that separates this modern commercial republic from the, from the older, um, the feudal, the medieval feudal world, the, the class aristocracies and the dynasties that ruled. That in this regime, men weren't restricted by the class they were in or the family. They, the, the regime began with an understanding that all men were, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, on our, it's, the, it's the writing or founding these inalienable rights that we have that, that class privilege should not get in the way of a person's wanting to improve himself. So at the, at the heart of this Venetian regime is this love of freedom, the desire to do whatever they want. But that means they're particularly susceptible to people who will say whatever they want to get ahead. You watch these motivating programs sometimes and you know, what they're really teaching people in the workplace to do is learn what motivates somebody and then play to it. How do, how do they sell products? I mean, just stop with that for a second. How do people sell products? They're looking at people's motivations and asking how they can manipulate them. Do this and we'll sell and, and we will beat our rival. So intrinsic to this regime is um, an invitation to use our minds to manipulate. So if anybody tells us what we want to hear or, or if we want something and they tell us what we want to hear, we're going to be far more susceptible to whatever they do with us. Um, think about, and, and remember, this is St. Thomas and it's um, uh, Boethius. F four of the most natural goods that, that are behind most of our actions are the causes of a great deal of misery in the world. Wealth, power, image, pleasure. That's St. Thomas, that's Boethius. All of us want to be wealthy, all of us want pleasure, all of us can or care about our image, we, we want to stand out, and what was the other? Power? Control over something? Um, just think about this for a second. What does Rodrigo want? Marriage to Desdemona because he loves her? I don't think so. He's in it for the pleasure, primarily. He's going to pay this money. What does Cassio want? Reputation. When his reputation goes down, he goes over and over, reputation, my reputation, my, those are his words, my reputation. He cares more about his image than anybody else. What does Brabantio want? Power, power and prestige. So there's, there, what Shakespeare's showing us is all these men have these different motives and Iago's capable of using every single one of them. He's playing to what they want and he uses it. So there is this, this at, the, at the core because of our love of freedom, this vulnerability to others, because it makes us susceptible, if we, they're telling us what we want, we're just going to play right into their hands. Um, what's behind that is, uh, I mean, I think it's... Cheryl. 
Carol? Cheryl. Cheryl um, hit it on the nose, I think. If, if the regime is peculiar because it gives us an opportunity to become who we think we can become, that we're not held back by our birth or privilege, or then it encourages a, a certain amount of, um, of selfishness, of self-serving. We're going we're to want to do things to serve our own interests. So it encourages a kind of selfishness. Now put those two things together, this, um, in, this um, underlying importance that we give to our minds, our intellects, to be resourceful, to get ahead, to use our minds, together with this self-serving impulse, um, this selfishness. This is the modern commercial regime. It's the product of the Enlightenment. Religion is looked at as a superstition. This is absolutely, I mean, this, this, the, the Enlightenment becomes an actual period in our history, you know, 17th, 18th century, where the, the, the commonly accepted view is that religion is a superstition. The churches were confiscated, the clergy persecuted, the states bought them up, gulfed them up, sorry. Take God out of the picture and let reason be the guide for everything you do. What's wrong? Get God out of it so that we can finally say, get rid of all these religious wars, get rid of all these religious fanatics, get religion out of the picture, and reason is sufficient to make a heaven on earth. This one, this is, are you kidding? This doesn't happen here. This is Venice. This is not a Grange. These things don't happen in Venice. Venice is the model of the modern commercial republic in which all people get along, all people are satisfied, it's like a heaven on earth. Take God out of the picture what happens to reason. What's wrong? What's wrong by treating reason as if it's sufficient to itself? What's wrong? Law. I, mean, yeah. I keep thinking of our world today, our country today. Yeah. Everything that you keep talking about. Yeah. Because everything is. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so faith yeah. and reason don't work anymore, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Two things. One is, I mean, to hit it again. Um, if, if, if C.S. Lewis, in another essay in a book called um, um, Abolition of Man, one of the chapters is called Men Without Chests. Would have been better if he'd said Men Without Hearts. What happens when a person gets in his intellect and he doesn't carry his heart with him, when he doesn't feel something for another person? It's more likely that he'll treat that person as an object. More easily remove him. It, it's much easier in our minds when we don't carry our hearts with us to be efficient machine-like, to get things done. Um, so one is that um, it, there's something about the nature of this regime that encourages the intellect at the expense of the heart. The argument that C.S. Lewis is making in that book, too, we have, it's really short, it's a wonderful book, is I, I keep thinking of Christ when he said, feed my sheep. What C.S. Lewis is saying is one of the things we most need today in teaching is develop good emotions. Aristotle said, Teach a kid what to love and what to hate. If, if he learns how to love well when he's young, when the mind comes, the mind will go on fire. 
Take love out of the picture and you're creating a machine. Okay? Motion without a heart is like a machine. So, um, Iago's that. Does Iago have a heart? Last thing you'd say is that he feels anything for anybody. Um, he's just purely in his head. There's no heart. If a man lives too exclusively in his head at the expense of his heart, or a woman today, what happens? I mean, it's just a, it's an inhuman world. So if you take God out and leave reason, one is that the reason can develop at the expense of heart. It produces a kind of enlargement of the head and a shrinking of the heart. And the other is that, and to me it's one, I mean, they're both important, is, is that reason by itself is capable of destroying itself. A man can come to a point of wanting to kill himself and have good reasons. A man can come to a point of wanting to commit murder and have good reasons. If you don't have a God or a higher order, what's there to stop you from doing either of those? Reason by itself is not sufficient. If it's not grounded in nature or, or faith, and I mean that both, we've lost any sense of nature today. A man whose reason is grounded in nature will know there's a nature to things. We have to be careful of it. A mother, a mother expecting has to take care what she's drinking too much or has drugs or... We live in a world that denies there's any nature to us. We can change sex, we can do whatever we want. A reason that's grounded with some sense of our nature, the nature of things, will be a much healthier reason. Take that away, he has no reason for not doing anything. Reason is capable of destroying itself without something either lower nature or higher. And the last that I would add, <laughs> Cheryl touched on again, is the sense of tradition, because tradition is multi-layered. If you live in a regime which encourages nothing but financial success, who cares about the past? Tradition is multi-layered. It carries different cultures, different ideas, different experiences. It, it deepens the lens with which you see things, the glasses out of which you know. Take tradition away. I mean, what Helen said, you're in a one-dimensional world. You're just on a surface. It's a black-white literal world. And so when we look at Venice, we can see every one of those things undermining. We've lost a sense of traditional values, family, marriage, um, traditions. And we're watching a very efficient world, but one that increasingly leaves itself open to evil. Okay? Um, okay, let me stop. Um, any thoughts or comments before we get to all's well? I hope this helps to make us more aware of our world and the judgments we make. Um, Christ didn't compromise with any of these. You know, he came out of a tradition, right? The whole Old Testament. Um, <sighs> carried it with him, everything. Let me ask that. I'm glad you went. Say your name again. Anne. Anne. Let me ask this. Um, 
I'm going to say, some of you may differ, but let me throw this out. I'm going to say that one of the problems with the Venetians and both um, Merchant and Othello is that they're too innocent. Take God out of the picture, take these traditions out of the picture. We're innocent. If you don't have a sense of a fall or sin, and God's out of it, why need God? You don't, you know, why not be innocent? So I would say that one of the faults of the Venetians is this, this innocence. The psychologists today would call it a false self. We walk around with this naivete so we can accuse others of abusing us. You know, somebody else, somebody else did this. They did this to me. To this victim mentality that we're innocent. I think one of the faults of the Venetians is that they live in that kind of innocence. Let me go over you. It's Anne. Is, is Desdemona innocent? Or, wait, I hope you, there, sorry, there's two meanings to the word innocent, right? Is, there, is everybody clear in that? There's, innocent means you're not guilty, but innocence also means a, a naivete, that you're, you're too gullible, too susceptible to evil. That's not a good quality. Christ himself said, be as gentle as the dove, as wise as the serpent. He did not, he said, be on guard. He did not want us to be susceptible to evil. That's Christ. So, is Desdemona innocent? I'm going to leave both meanings out there. Is she innocent? Or let me put it, is she guiltless? Let me put it that way. What does she mean when she says, nobody, I myself? Is she acknowledging that there's something, some part that she played, or is she just taking it on? I think she's... Uh... Admitting to a sin of omission, she should have seen things she didn't. That's the serious question I have about her. I mean, I, she's, you know, she's, however we look at, this is a strange, this is, once again, Shakespeare doing these strange things with us. To our knowledge, she's dead. He'd already killed her. Two minutes later, did she die? Was this one of those threshold liminal experiences we hear about? You know, that poets, I mean, poets have this sense of things. Was she at a threshold? Remember, Othello walked her through things just before he strangles her. He, he says some things and she's hearing things that are shocking her. And in response to each one, she's saying, no, 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 I didn't, you know. So does she, does she see something? Does she put things together? It's a serious question. I don't want to, let me stop here because we could go on with this on it and I want to do it. My own, go ahead, what's your name? Julianne, sorry? Julianne? Julianne. It's a tough, my, my own feeling is that they're both too innocent. Both of them are far. Their love is extraordinary. They're too innocent. They're, they're not aware enough of sin, either one of them, to make them more cautious. You know, I mean, in retrospect, any one of us could say, why didn't Othello go confront her? I mean, that's, to me, one of those obvious things. And 
Why didn't she, or even worse, why did Amelia, this is her husband, she's been married to this guy, he's put, he, he, he gives her the hanky, she doesn't question him at all, um, Othello slaps his wife, um, something is going on, why, why, as a wife, why did she not go to that man and confront him, that's her husband. To me, it's, it's, it's not a lack of trust, it's, it's too innocent a trust, it's that the people in this world are not on guard with something, and the, it, you can't miss it because he's at work everywhere. They should have, all of them should have been more on guard. So my thought about Desdemona just uh, is, it's hard, this is my reading, it's hard for me to give any other meaning to that than that she, she, take, she recognizes a guilt because nobody is innocent in this world. So when she says, nobody, I myself, um, it just leaves me with that question, whether there is in some way she recognized it. And if that, and I, that's my own, if that is true, then she's a deeper character because she sees something. Because it's too easy to play a victim for all of us, you know, in the presence of evil. Um, for her to see that means she's a deeper character because everybody, everybody before that moment is shallow. They really are one-dimensional. They're living on surfaces. The love between them is deep, there's no question about that, but they have so little sense of deeper issues, you know, and the end brings it to them, sadly, with that outcome, but... Amy. Yeah. Yeah. But don't you see? I mean, there isn't anything he doesn't play on. God, he's so cunning. God. I don't want to hear anybody come back next week with any sob stories. You guys be on guard this week. Whatever you do. <laughs> okay, let's let's go on. Let's. Okay. So there's the Venetian world. Let's let's. Um, well, here, let me, I'm, and I'm going to ask, I'm not, I don't want an answer, because is there something Christ-like in Desdemona and Othello? I don't, I'm going to leave it. Is there something Christ-like? Um, um, leave it there, just a question for you all to. So, modern influences, very, very quickly again, three of the great influences that gave a definite shape to the modern world. The Copernican Revolution, Machiavelli, and the Reformation. I've already gone over them. I want to touch on them again just very briefly. Copernicus, crucial, absolutely crucial. Copernicus corrected the Ptolemaic scheme because of the calculations he was able to make. He, he discovered that the um, Earth was not at the center of the solar system. It was one of the planets revolving around the sun. Okay? Now hold on to that, because I'm sure you guys have been hearing that since you were in kindergarten, but hold on to this, because this is probably something you didn't think about. Maybe you did. Not only did it undermine all of the authority in the, in the states and in the church, because they were all vested on that Ptolemaic scheme, that was the basis for everything, the church was there too, it called everything into question. So what happened with the Copernican Revolution is that it, it, it set into motion what we know as the Renaissance, this rediscovery that people could no longer assume things, they had to question everything. It, it, Shakespeare would not have done what he did if he had not come out of that period because it was a time of looking at the depths of things. You, could, you can't take things for granted at moments like that in history. One of the important things to remember about the Copernican Revolution is this, this is crucial. 
In the Ptolemaic scheme, the earth is at the center. It's a place of death and change. It's a place of mutability. Human, trees come into existence, they die. Humans come into existence, they die. Does Venus ever die? Jupiter, Mercury, Mars, do they ever stop doing what they do? No. So in the Ptolemaic scheme, Earth was looked at as a place of death and mutability. The heavens, so the sublunary, from the moon down, it was a place of mutability. This is a governing concept in the Renaissance, this place of mutability. Beyond the moon was this place of immutability, permanence. So, and they named, the, the pagans named the planets after gods because they were turtle, immortal, okay? So what happens when the earth takes its place with those planets? It means now you can study the earth like the other planets because there must be something there that's unchanging. So science comes into effect and what is, what's the object of science? Those things which are determined, which can't be other than they are. There's a necessity to them, a law to them. Is everybody following? The object of science is to discover those constancies, those things that are constant. Even if they're not 100%, they're constant. Those things that seem to, can't be other than they are. So that they're looking at what can be um, predicted or repeated, the laws in nature, okay? So when the earth takes its place there, and man does too, Science can begin, begin to study man as if there are things that determine him. Okay? These determinism, these things that can't be other than they are. One of the fruits of that eventually with Freud will be, Freud denies that man has any free will, that he's determined. He has these sexual impulses, polymorphous perverse, the edible comp, these are determinisms. You have to learn the mechanisms to try to help become aware of them so you can work with them. So the earth takes its place and man becomes an object of science. He gets objectified. That's the and it's not just peculiar to men. <laughs> Women do the same thing. We objectify each other. It's one of the effects of the fall. It's only by love that we come together. Um, so... Um, so science is set in motion um, and a different way of looking at man comes into being. We're going to see the end result of it in our time in Darwin and Freud. Darwin's going to say that man's a product of these forces, these evolution of forces, over which he has no control. None. His free will is gone. He's a product of these things. No free will. Freud will say man has no free will. He says that explicitly. That, that man has these determinisms, we have to figure them out, you know, and by these, developing these techniques, we can help man get past the repressions and disguises and learn to see things and work with them some. But he denies that man has free will. So one is the Copernican Revolution and science replaces, really, the church and poetry. Because up until that time, the poet was seen as the source of wisdom. Chaucer, Homer, Virgil, Dante, you name it. Second is Machiavelli. We've gone through that. Machiavelli um, justifies this principle that the ends justify the mean, that for a ruler to get control of the state, he can do anything he wants so long as it justifies the end. 
The end is control of a state. If it means um, getting rid of a person, you do it. The end of the state. So the modern totalitarian state comes into being. When the church gets, or the state separates itself from the church, it has even more of, of an opening to treat man as expendable. Do whatever you need to do to get control of the state. So Machiavelli becomes established as a principle. I don't think there's any modern government in Europe and in, in America that isn't Machiavellian absolutely at its root. The third is the Reformation, and you know that the, all of the Reformation thinkers, Luther and Calvin were the dominant ones, denied man's free will. The effects of the fall were complete. When man fell, he became depraved. So this really dark view of man enters the world then, and we're living with it. Shakespeare was aware of all of them. So in Shakespeare, we're going to see the very worst of man, and we're going to see the very best. Okay, now let me just add a, a note to all of that for a second. One of the ways in which we can understand our own nature, our place in time, is to ask this question. I don't think I've asked it to this group, I'm not sure. Um, what are our beginnings? Are our beginnings high or low? It's a fundamental question every age should ask. Are our beginnings high or low? What were the beginnings of man in the ancient world? Homer, the pre-Socratics, the pagans. High or low? Mary, did you have a... I said, I don't know. No, don't? You are good. <laughs> Socrates is sitting right next to you, even if you don't know it. <laughs> I'm saying that seriously. Come on. Be beginnings for man in the ancient world, high or low? Let me see if I can get it out. If somebody can just jump here and give me a reason. Nobody? The beginnings, for, you'll see, the beginnings of man, according to the ancients, was high. Because all the men descended from the gods. The ancients believed in this golden world that had once taken place and that had been lost by successive stages. But if you look at Achilles, Odysseus, Virgil, I mean, or Aeneid and you know, the pre-Socratic. They all believe that man descended from the gods. This Olympian Parthenon and... Um, are, the be are the beginnings for modern man high or low? It's highly low. Hmm? Low. Why? Well, Yeah. So what does that do to our sense of our own self-image? I'm not kidding about this. To me, it's just sad to see what's happening to our world. Beginnings of, the modern, for, for, of man for the modern is absolutely low. We either came out of a big bang, this explosion that to me is a greater myth than any of the myths that science tried to debunk. The, the big bang was a contingency. How does a contingency explain another contingency? It doesn't explain anything. Honestly, it doesn't. According to the scientists who are the modern myth mythologists, our beginnings were either a big bang or apes. No, 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 seriously. What does that do for our understanding of ourselves? How many people today living in our world believe in free will? Do the Protestant fundamentalists believe in free will? No, they do not. They're absolutely depraved unless they come to a moment when they say, Jesus is my savior. And then the world is changed. We live in a world in which um, we almost cannot have a worse image of the nature of ourselves as human beings than the one we've been given by modern scientists and the Protestant Reformation. Shakespeare's writing at this moment, okay? He knows Machiavelli, he knows the Copernican Revolution, and he knows the Protestant Reformation. 
Hamlet is about it. I don't want to go into that now, but Hamlet is his treatment of that. It's a private revelation. Hamlet has to deal with a ghost. Nobody else can enter into that experience. Shakespeare knew all of this, okay? So the, the image that he's, get, he's showing us the best and worst of ourselves. And every, he's helping us to see everything, and he's doing it in accord with regimes so that we can learn to, to be aware of differences in us and what it produces us in us, what our background, where we come from, okay? Okay, um, basic questions for tonight, going ahead. All's Well That Ends Well takes place in a French world. It's in Paris. It's an aristocratic, it's a monarchical world, monarchy under a king, and it's aristocratic. Um, when the play opens, we discover immediately that the regime is dying. The king is dying, um, Bertram's father just died, and Helena's father just died. So we're in a world of transition, a world is dying off. It's into that world that Helena comes. She's going to do what she does. What she does, I think, is extraordinary. So um, we're in a different regime, but we're in an aristocracy. And remember, Shakespeare himself was writing in an aristocracy because England was an aristocracy when he wrote. So he was keenly aware of um, what was unnatural about an aristocracy. Shakespeare's going to make it clear here. Um, Machiavelli's great principle was the ends justify the means. The title of the play, All's Well That Ends Well. Okay? And I th think I told you earlier that Chaucer's clerk's tale is about this woman named Griselda who is tested by her husband just mercilessly. He keeps putting her through these tests and she is absolutely flawless. She's like Job, except she doesn't complain. If you've read Job, you know that he's complaining all the time. Um, till God says, who are you to? You know. um, um, Griselda ob obeys. She, she's extraordinary in her obedience. Helena meets every one of her husband's tests. They're impossible. If you've started reading, you know. But she doesn't do it passively. She is extremely resourceful. She's absolutely capable. Is she a Machiavellian woman? Serious question. Ends justify the mean. The name of the, the title of the play? All's well that ends well. I don't want to answer that. I just, when you're reading, is she doing this for self-serving reasons or is she doing it because she loves him? You have to... Um, we're going to find, when we look at it, it's exactly, the, it's just amazing to put these things together. As, as in, much, or in, uh, all, or in Merchant and Othello, there's this conflict between the city and love. We saw that what, what happens to love in the city is that it, it gets attacked, it's under attack. So there's something antithetical. In the city, people are given to self um, self-serving, self-interest, power, wealth, pleasure. Those are the driving forces and those things drive wedges between men and women. Um, we're going to see that in this play there's this antithesis between the city and love again. Helen is going to go to Paris 
and offer her service to the king to cure him of his disease. The whole action is going to shift from Paris to Italy, interestingly, because Shakespeare knows what's going on in Italy, because in Italy, what's happening, all these new communes are developing that we've been talking about, Venice. Is everybody clear on that? This is so crucial that it's in Italy because of the way the, the church had to struggle with the state and finally disengaged that made it possible for these new kinds of political structures to come into existence, these communes, these republics, where human beings had the freedom to pursue their own lives. That's entirely new to the West then in Florence and Venice, okay? Helena goes to Italy where all of this is taking place, Shakespeare knows it. When she comes back, she does something that radically changes the courts and this aristocracy. This is a woman, no political ambitions, not wealth. Well, I'm sorry, leave it up to you. Um, she comes back and she performs this, she accomplishes this amazing feat. Is she Machiavelli? Virginity and marriage, two of the great themes of the play, I'll, I'll get to it, but in one sense, it seems to me the play is affirming the role of virginity in the life of a woman in a world which does not value it at all. We're going to see when we start reading the play that the two positions are by paroles who will say, virginity? Are you kidding? Scrub it. Get rid of it. And the clown who says, marry, because if I don't marry, I'm going to give in to my worst lusts. So his reasons for marriage are absolutely what's tangential or self-serving, practical, not love. So the two views held up here are once again antagonistic, virginity and marriage, and there are obviously a concern here in the, in the play. Helena is described as having this third eye. You've all seen that in occult literature, it's that third eye. She, her father was a physician, a healer, and he passed on that gift to her the, the, the um, doctors who work with the king try to heal him. They're all products of the new scientific ways of doing things. They're all assured of the power of science. None of them can cure him. They all fail. Helena comes to the king and she does something with him that cures him. Lefeu's answer is going to be, miracles no longer exist. And he's saying it because he knows that a miracle has just taken place. So Helen, Helena is the instrument by which these strange things happen. She, she heals the king and then she's going to do something to answer these ridiculous things that this husband puts on her. Men don't come off very good. God. Last thing is poetry. Once again, again. Poetry again. Here I go. <laughs> I'm going to leave that till we get there. But those are some of the mo more important themes just to keep on your mind as you read. Okay, I want to get there so we can... I want to just start it very, very briefly. And I'm going to read just a couple of passages to get you going, and then we'll get into it full swing next week. Where is Christ in this world? Once again, God, we're not in church. Does that mean he's not around? Is God not here? Um, what's going on? I'm going to, I've been meeting for two weeks now to talk about tragedy. I want to get us, I, so first thing next week, I promise, tragedy. I want to get back to tragedy because there's some things we won't understand unless I go there. But the beginning of the play, all's well. It begins, I think I've said this before, remember, the beginning lines, the beginning scene in every Shakespeare work gives away the play. 
it, it's, it's like a part that contains the whole. Okay? The Countess, this is um, in Rossillon, away from Paris. She says, because the king has just called for Bertram, king's dying, he wants Bertram to come, Bertram's father's just died, Bertram's being called to the court to serve the king. He knows when he goes, he owes his life to the king. That's absolutely, he's, the king is his liege. He's supposed to give obedience to every, a man. I don't, just, a man, so we're not talking about a woman's obedience to, this is a man's obedience to his liege, his lord, okay? Countess says, in delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband, and I in going, madam, weep over my father's death anew, but I must attend his majesty's command, to whom I am now in ward, evermore in subject. He's supposed to be subject to his king. So those are the opening lines, okay? What do we learn about Paris just from those two lines? In delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband. Her husband just died. Okay, Bertram's father just died. Um, Helena's father just died. And Bertram's being called to court. And she says, in delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband. And in I in going, madam, weep over my father's death anew. But I must attend his majesty's. He has to obey his king. He's in subjection to him. So he goes, what do we learn about this? just from that language. It's incestuous. It's ingrown. This is her son. She lost a husband. She's looked at her son as a husband. And he feels like he's um, losing his father again. Um, I think what Shakespeare's doing is just showing the ingrown nature of a class privilege, that once, once a regime defines itself by a class, it becomes ingrown. A family begins to turn in on itself. Has anybody taken the throne in England that's outside of that family for the last 200 years? It becomes ingrown. Um, a, a man is not a man anymore by birthright. He's defined by his family. Um, and here she's saying in delivering my son for me I bury a second husband that's not accidental he's I mean I'm, I'm sure that there's some truth to that for widows when they lose their husbands that their sons sort of watch out for them but I think Shakespeare is asking us to go a little bit deeper that this is one of the indications one of the um, one of the consequences the signs the fruit of an aristocracy it becomes ingrown okay he has to go off Lefeu talks about um, Helena's father. He hath abandoned his phys this is the king. He has abandoned his physicians, madam, under whose practices he has persecuted time with hope and finds no other advantage in the process but only the losing of hope by time. It's a waste of time. All these physicians have tried to cure him um, with no success. Then he describes Helena. This young gentlewoman had a father, oh, that had how sad a passage tis, whose skill almost as great as his honesty had it stretched so far, would have made nature immortal. He had the power to revive, to renew. And death should have played for lack of work. It's like he would have worked so much with nature for, for something in nature to renew itself. So he was exceptional as a, as a physician. Would he, for the king's sake, he were living, I think it would be the death of the king's disease, the way he's playing on words there. Um, 
Bertram goes off and Helena is left by herself and she watches Bertram goes off. She loves this man. She knows he's above her, that she has no claim on him, cannot make a claim because he's above her. We will see when, he, when she heals the king that the king will give her choice over the men. She will choose him and Bertram will look at her in contempt. He will argue with the king. This, this, that's one of the great ideas. He's going to argue with the king when he's supposed to be his subject. He's going to say, why? This is a woman beneath me. The king says, I'll make up every deficiency. I'll give you, you know, he does everything he can to come. Bertram will have none of it. Finally, the king gets furious. Says, you marry this woman. And he, and he does. But here's Helena in the beginning. She says about line 75, over that all, I think not on my father. She's not, she's not sad because she's reminded of her father's death. She's watching the man that she loves leave. These great tears grace his remembrance more than those I shed for him. What was he like? She doesn't even remember her father. I have forgot him. My, my imagination carries no favor in it but Bertram's. I am undone. There is no living none if Bertrand be away. Twere all one that I should love a bright particular star and think to wed it. He's so above me. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted. She has no hope that they'll ever marry. Not in his fear. The ambition in my... So here's, here's one of the problems. Should love be subjected to a class distinction? Would Christ be glad with that? She loves this man and she can't, there's no way to fulfill it given this political structure. In his bright radiance and collateral light must I be comforted, not in his fear? The ambition of my love thus plagues itself. The hind that would be mated by the lion must die for love. Twas pretty, though a plague, to see him every hour. That is, she used to watch a plague because it would cause her pain. She knew she'd ever be able to um, consummate the relation, close it with him. Twas pretty, though a plague, to see him every hour, to sit and draw his arched brows, his hawking eyes, his curls. In her. You can see her in imagination. She loves this man doing all of this the way a young woman would or a young man of a woman he likes. Heart too capable of every line and trick of his sweet favor, but now he's gone, and my idolatrous fancy um, must, sanctify, must sanctify his relics. Notice the religious um, spirit she brings to this. Um, Parolis comes. Now, Parolis is going to be one of the biggest scoundrels in the play. She says, one that goes with him, I love him for his sake. And yet I know him a notorious liar. Think him a great way fool, solely a coward. Parolis is a scoundrel. She loves this man because she loves Bertram. I mean, talk about taking on, you know, the sins of another. Now hold on to that. She, wait, wait, let me, because, sorry, because we've got to wait, hold on just one minute, because I'll come to it in a second. I want to, I'm too late with you guys, too she and Parolis are going to have this exchange about virginity, and Parolis is going to make fun of it. If we had more time, I'd read some of the lines. He has nothing good to say about it. On, about line 120, he says, Mary and blowing him down again. That is, a woman gets pregnant and blown up when she loses her virginity. 131, that's little can be said in it. Tis against the rule of nature. To speak on the part of virginity is to excuse your, accuse your mother, which is most infallible. He goes on and on. It's all words. You could, you're wa we're watching a man use words um, to debunk virginity um, and implicitly marriage. So he says, get rid of it. Um, and Eve says, line 156, Mary, tis a withered pear. 
Your date is better in your pie and your porridge than in your cheek. That is, it's in the act that it comes to fruition. And your virginity, your old virginity, is like one of our French withered pears. It looks ill, it eats dryly. Mary, tis a withered pear, it was formerly better. Mary, yet tis a withered pear. Will you anything with it? Now, I just, I want to read two passages and then stop. Helen's response, and it's like for a moment she's responding to him and meditating on her own. She says, not my virginity, yet. There shall your master, that is inner virginity, there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother and a mistress, and a friend, a phoenix, phoenix always renewed, a captain, an enemy, a guide, a goddess, a sovereign, a counselor, a traitress, and a deer. Now remember, as you read, get, and you get to the end, remember this speech. Does she fulfill this speech by what she does? Is she all of these things? His humble ambition, proud humility, his jarring concord, and his discord dulcet. She brings opposite together. Discord, sweet discord, jarring concord, his faith, his sweet disaster, with a world of pretty fond, adoptious Christendoms, the blinking Cupid gossip. That is, she is not going to be all these cute things that women say women should be, you know, in their relation to men. The blinking Cupid gossips. Now shall he, I know not what he shall. God send him well. The court's a learning place, and he is one. We've talked about the court. The city is the place of trial. We know that when the men go there, they're going to fool around with women. And the women are going to fool around with them. Now, Parolles goes off, and then she says, line 209, Our remedies off in ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high? Her love goes so beyond being able to describe that makes me see and cannot feed my eye. She can't see the end of it. She knows this feeling. It's for something far greater than she can express. The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like lights and kiss like native things. That is, nature was meant to bring us together. The aristocratic court is separating them. This place of privilege keeps these people apart from others to join like lights and kiss like native things. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains in sense. Those of us who are confined by what we just see with our senses and do suppose what hath been cannot be. That is, miracles that we thought once were no longer can be. Because that's, I just described, that's the modern world. Miracles have no place in our world. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love what woman could accomplish what she did if she didn't love the man, just if love weren't behind what she did. The king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. She's got a project here. Just make her Machiavelli. She wants to cure the king because she believes if she does, she has a chance at Bertram. Now, quickly, I've got to just ask this question and then... So she's saying our remedies often in ourselves we do lie... We let ourselves down because we don't have enough faith in God. She clearly sees that she's capable of doing these things if her faith were great enough, if her love were great enough. And she's banking on that. So she's going to set off to Paris here. But I want to go back to this line. Not my virginity yet, 
there shall your master have a thousand loves. What's she saying in those lines? Bertram's just debunked virginity, and she's saying, not my virginity yet. There shall your master have... Um, what's she saying about virginity here? See? Flesh it out, Mary, can you? Yes, it is. When she, when she gives it to her husband, she'll be everything. Yes. His mother, she'll listen to him. Yes. His everything. Yes, absolutely. Here's the point I want to make, too, because I just, it's, it's, I've never seen this in literature before. What she's saying is, in my virginity, he will find everything in my love. He, I will be all things to him. I will give myself completely. Um, what she's doing is saying that her love, there's a whole, this is crucial, the wholeness of her love rests in her virginity. It's not contingent on the sexual act. Because we know that once the sexual act comes into play, that it, it's often easy for it to become a difficulty between men and women. Um, it's a source of pleasure for the man. It's a source of pleasure for the woman. Do they enter into it because the other wants it? I mean, what she's saying here is that what she gives him will not be contingent on the sexual act. Is there anybody in history to whom we can point and say the same thing? Say your name again. Say, can you say your name? No, her. Yes. Melody, can you say it louder? I don't think everybody heard you. It was Mary. Yeah. Explain it. Can you say anything? Mary gave all that she had to her family um, and didn't need to show To God. And then everything, yeah. What Shakespeare's showing us is there's something in, in um, Helena that's not, not contingent, not conditioned on the sexual act. That she's bringing a whole, that's what she's saying here, she's bringing a wholeness to the love that she's offering Bertrand, that she will, he doesn't know anything about it. Um, that's not going to depend on anything else. Whatever he does, whatever thing goes on. One of the interesting things to see here is traditionally, if we look back, if you look at Chaucer, if you go back to Chaucer, you go back to the medieval poems, it's always the man, or generally the man, who pursues the woman. He's the knight pursuing the beloved to whom he's going to offer his life. That's the chivalric ideal. What we're being shown here is the opposite. That a woman is looking at a man as the object of all that she has and wanting to offer him everything. Now the question is, she's in this, our remedies in ourself do lie, which we ascribe to heaven, the faded sky gives, I mean, read, just go over those two speeches because they're really important. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love. How can, how can any of us accomplish anything we wanted if we didn't give ourselves completely in love? The king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed and will not leave me. So, question I began with a few minutes ago. Is this a Machiavellian woman? Is this a Christian? I don't want to answer it. Just is, just is, while you're reading, keep that. Is she Machiavellian? Is, how are we to look at this love? You had a question. Sorry, go ahead. Again, I, I think she is Machiavellian. And I, 
with. I keep hearing everything you keep reading and saying. I keep seeing her as a possessive love, not a not a totally innocent love like Mary, the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. I just don't get that at all. I, I mean, I, I see where you come from that, but I still see her as very possessive love, manipulating. I'm going to get my way. I have a ends to my means to get there. I'm going to do it. I mean, we know people in life have done this. Yeah. Over yes. Over. Are they really happy? And, at the end, after they've actually achieved what they... Let's wait on the play. But yes, I mean, all that you said, yes. Um, I mean, not yes, to, I mean, we'll see. I, I'm holding, right now I'm just asking the question, but there are lots of people to do that. There's lots of men who do that. There's lots of women who do that. Um, how are we going to... Let's wait till we read the play, because I want all the evidence out before we come to a judgment, but that's my question. So we're in a new world. Once again, Shakespeare's showing us there's a, there's a woman who's leading the action. What are we going to say about her at the end? Enjoy the play. It's a, it's a good... Wait, by the way, I think the ending to All's Well that ends well is one of the least successful endings in all of Shakespeare. I, I, just, I just think the ending is... And it, it isn't because these questions... I just think it's the way he handles it. But, but everything up to that, it, I think it's a great play because he's raising all of these questions about a modern woman and these stupid men. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, the, did you all did? I hope we got enough signups. You all have a good week. <laughs>